we stand together this morning, honor the man of God. Appreciate Brother Sanford. I want him to come. What God has put into his heart and his spirit. Amen. To preach the word of God. I still believe we're begotten by the word. Amen. I also believe that we're kept by the word. Amen. When nothing else sometimes can get the job done, it's the word of God that can reach out there and get a hold of us and get us back in where we need to be. And thank God for it this morning. Let's give Brother Sanford, he's not a stranger to this pulpit, but let's give him a good Bendale welcome here today. God bless you. Amen. Let's give a hand clap to the Lord this morning. Amen. How many's glad to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Always an honor to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. And it's good to see each and every one of you on this Sunday morning. And um, if you have your Bibles, I will uh, go to Isaiah chapter number 6. And as you're finding Isaiah chapter 6, um, it is an honor to be in the house of the Lord today. And uh, understand that we are celebrating uh, July 4th. You know, 245 years ago, um, what happened on that day is what we're celebrating today. 245 years of freedoms and liberties. And uh, while I celebrate that and while I'm still thankful to be an American, it's not very popular some, to some people these days, but I'm still thankful to be an American. I'm still thankful to have that flag that we have. And um, we celebrate that for 245 years, but there was another freedom that was given to us almost 2,000 years ago on that place called Calvary. And I'm thankful not just for the freedoms that we have as a nation, but I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have as a spiritual nation. Amen. Because if the Son shall therefore make you free, you shall be free indeed. Anybody thankful that you're free today? Amen. Free from sin, free from bondage, free from depression. Amen. And I'm thankful to be in the house of the Lord. You know, there's no better place than uh, to celebrate July 4th and being in an atmosphere like this. A spiritually free atmosphere. And uh, it's an honor to be with you today. And it's always an honor of mine to be able to come and minister to this great church. And uh, give honor to your pastor and his wife and their family. And all the ministry that's here. And uh, everyone that's in the house of the Lord. Now I know that uh, it's our only service today. And uh, your pastor's already said it. So let's just give it the best we have for the next few moments. And let's just see what the Lord will do for us. Isaiah chapter number 6 and verse number 1. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. 
you'll help me today, I want you to look to your neighbor, to your left, or to your right, and you're going to ask them a question this morning. The question that you ask them will be the title of my sermon for the next few moments. So I want you to find somebody and just simply ask them, what are you looking at? Why don't you find somebody else and ask them that same question? Now, don't, don't get too upset with anybody. Try not to get confrontational. Amen. What are you looking at? God bless you. You may be seated. Let me explain this before somebody gets upset. <laughs> I suppose the best way to begin the sermon this morning is by admitting to this entire congregation that I am well aware of the fact that my title has probably caught some of us off guard while it's probably caught the attention of others because it is a question that we often use in a rhetorical sense when we catch someone looking at us for an extended period of time. And regardless if that individual is staring innocently or they're staring rudely, the fact is it can be a somewhat hostile phrase we hurl toward that individual as a result of them staring at us. Now surely I'm not the only one who's here today who knows what it's like to be somewhere whether you're standing in line at Walmart or whether you're standing around the altar area after a service. And it's almost like you have that sixth sense kick in because you know somewhere, someone who's not too far away from you is just staring in your direction or they're staring at you very intently. And maybe I'm the only one that's carnal in the room because I've been in those situations in my own life and I've seen those people looking in my direction or even staring at me for an extended period of time. And maybe I'm just rude, but I'm sure everybody in the house knows what it's like to want to just look back at them and ask that question, what are you looking at? I remember working at Ashley Furniture for several years before I went full-time in ministry. And I recall a particular day where we had just hired several new men to help us on the dock and one particular morning, around 9 o'clock on our first break, I'm standing there talking to a couple gentlemen that I work with, and mind you, they're not church people at all. And that is an understatement because they're just not church people. They don't go to Sunday school on Sunday mornings. They're just good guys. But I'm standing there talking to them when a few moments had passed, and one of the gentlemen that I was speaking to noticed that one of the new guys we had just hired a few days earlier was staring very intently in his direction. And you know how it is trying to talk to somebody at the same time. Somebody is just staring at you for an extended period of time. And this began to go on for several minutes when all of a sudden the other guy that I'm talking to realizes that one of his buddies is being stared at. And so he takes advantage of the opportunity and looks at the gentleman that's being stared at and says, you know, I've come to learn in my life that somebody stares at somebody else for that long for one of two reasons. He said, either they want to fight you or they want to kiss you. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget that gentleman that that man said that to said, man, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I really don't feel like fighting when he understood what he had just said. And then he makes up by saying, but at the same time, uh, I really don't feel like being kissed either. Uh, but the fact remains, ladies and gentlemen, everybody in this room this morning knows what it's like for a situation to either want you to ask that question or the situation to demand you to ask that question. 
But in fact, before we go any further this morning in the sermon, uh, now that I've got everybody's attention, uh, I've come to bring all of us face to face with the reality this morning uh, that every one of us in this room, we all uh, are looking at something. Uh, Can I tell you that while we sit in this beautiful building uh, and while we are surrounded by God's glory uh, and while we feel God's anointing and while we have access to the supernatural, uh, can I tell you this morning that there are things in this life that can divert our attention away from the things of God. We can sit in a Holy Ghost filled service like we're in right now and yet there are elements in my life and there are elements in your life that can demand our focus to be elsewhere but where we are at this moment. And so knowing that I've come to this service with a question that has dominated my thoughts for the past several months. In fact it is a question that I fell in my spirit early this morning as I begin to seek the Lord for this service. And I think it is a question that God wants to personally ask everybody in this room. It was a question He asked me several months ago. And it's a question that God wants all of us to answer in this room this morning. And that is the question, what are you looking at? Now, in order to fully understand where I'm going this morning, we need to look no further than our text that we read a few moments ago. Because the Bible tells us in that first verse of Isaiah chapter number 6 that in the year that King Uzziah died, but before we get to Uzziah's death, we must begin this morning by knowing that King Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king over the nation of Judah. And it was a reign that would last some 52 years. The beginning of his kingship was marked as a tremendous success because of his desire to seek the face of the Lord. But not only did Uzziah desire to please God, but he also surrounded himself with godly men. The prophet Zechariah was a man that Uzziah had a very close relationship with. And the Bible tells us that the nation of Judah was blessed by God because they were led by a godly man who surrounded himself with godly examples and influences. No politician could have imagined a better tenure as a chief executive over a nation than this man Uzziah because prosperity was enjoyed in every area of his life. Politically, Uzziah's leadership along with his projects and programs were met with an amazing success. Militarily, Uzziah was a brilliant military mind. He was organized, prepared, and inventive. His army celebrated continual victories uh, throughout those five plus decades. Uh, In fact, it was Uzziah's maneuvers uh, and it was Uzziah's strategies uh, that everyone else copied and studied. Uh, Personally, uh, Uzziah's fame began to spread uh, throughout the entire known world at that time. Uh, His strength was envied by other kings uh, and it was spoken of as far away as Egypt. Uh, And knowing this, this morning we would expect uh, that Uzziah's biography would continue with amazing accomplishments and renowned achievements. But ladies and gentlemen, I've come to tell us that the life of Uzziah would take a very dramatic turn because prosperity began to blur the king's vision. You see, Uzziah bought into the lie that he was the one responsible for the nation's success and not God. And so it is in 2 Chronicles 26 when the Bible says that this king who had become so drunk 
dwelt on power uh, enters the temple uh, and burns incense on the altar of incense. Uh, and because of this, leprosy covers his body uh, and he is removed as a king from that moment. Uh, understand that by burning incense on that altar, uh, Uzziah had usurped the office of a priest. Uh, and even though it was not his place to burn incense, uh, Uzziah still chose to do it uh, because that's how prideful uh, and that's how arrogant Uzziah had become. Uh, no longer was he that humble man. Uh, no longer was he that meek man. But now uh, he lives a life of pride and arrogance. Uh, and he simply says, I don't need a priest uh, to burn incense for me. Uh, but I'll go in the office of the priest. Uh, and I'll burn incense for myself. Uh, and because of this, Uzziah lived uh, the rest of his life with leprosy. Uh, and he was a continual sin, a symbol uh, of sin, rebellion, and wickedness. Uh, all of his godly obedience was erased. Uh, all of his successes were eclipsed uh, by this one act of foolishness. Uh, and the eulogy he was given at his death uh, was equally as disappointing as his latter years. Uh, because when the eulogy began to be read, uh, it did not mention his successes. Uh, prosperity was not even uttered. Uh, military genius was not remembered. Uh, but the eulogy of Uzziah was simply, uh, he is a leper. Uh, his pride prevented him uh, from being buried with previous kings of Judah, which was the custom of their day. Uh, but Uzziah was buried uh, in some random field alone, uh, all because there was a day uh, that he entered the temple uh, and he wrongfully burned incense on that altar. Hundreds of years pass. And now we stand in the 8th century. And to show you just how important that moment was in the life of Uzziah, hundreds of years have passed. And when the body of Uzziah was moved, and when they decided to rebury the bones of Uzziah, somebody got the idea to take out a pen or something, and they scratched on the coffin these words. Hither were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. Do not open. You see, even centuries later, even though hundreds of years have passed, Israel and Judah wanted nothing to do with Uzziah because that's how much of a symbol of rebellion this man had become. But can I take it a step further this morning and tell us that by wrongfully burning incense on in that temple, it not only affected the king Uzziah, but it affected the entire nation of Judah. While they were mourning the death of their king, there was a deterioration of morality and spirituality among the people in that nation. The effect of the backsliding of the nation coupled with the death of Uzziah led to an overall national depression in Judah. They saw the decay of their society. They saw the sin of their political leaders. They saw the migration away from worship. They saw idolatry creep in to their society. There were those in the nation because of what they saw who had given up hope for revival and restoration. But hang on to me now because onto the scene comes a prophet named Isaiah and he was according to many to be the cousin of Uzziah and because of their, their familiarity and their family heritage he had access to the courts of the kings and while Judah was reeling from Uzziah's sin while society was degrading 
while morality was vanishing, while idolatry was increasing, while the church was discouraged, while the believers were depressed, Isaiah picks up his pen and he begins to write in the year that King Isaiah died. I saw also the Lord. It's amazing that Isaiah makes mention of Isaiah dying because he says in the year that he died. But Isaiah doesn't dwell on what's going wrong for too long because it's almost like he was saying, Brother Moore, I've seen enough of that. I know that he sinned. I know that he died a leper and I know our nation has fallen apart. But Isaiah said, I'm not looking at that anymore. And instead Isaiah shifts his focus away from the moral decay of this society and he says I saw also the Lord I've come to tell this congregation this morning that Isaiah made the choice some of us need to make in this room today we need to make up our mind I see all of this but I'm about to change my perspective I'm about to lift up my head and I'm about to focus on something greater than what's surrounding me Isaiah said he saw also the Lord and he was high meaning that Isaiah had to stop looking at everything down here and he had to pick up his head and I've come to preach to some people who need to do the same thing this morning we need to lift up our heads and see a God who's greater you need to lift up your head and see a God who's stronger you need to lift up your head get your eyes off this and get your eyes on that and once your perspective changes you see something begins to happen when Isaiah gets his eyes off all of this and he lifts up his head and gets his eyes on that yes ladies and gentlemen he saw a king that was disenfranchised from his throne he saw a king that was no longer in charge of a kingdom and he was no longer leading his people but Isaiah saw another king who was still on his throne Isaiah saw another king I feel my preaching in this house today Isaiah saw another king who was still in the peak of his glory he saw a another king who was still in charge of his people while Uzziah was in leprous robes. Isaiah saw a God in kingly robes while Uzziah was off the throne. Isaiah saw a God still on the throne while Uzziah is in a house of leprosy. Isaiah sees a God who's still in the temple because in chaos he saw order in trouble. He saw triumph in pain. He saw power and in hurt he saw healing I've come to ask a question today what are you looking at do you get it in the year that he died I saw also also implies Isaiah saw both also implies Isaiah sees both things happening but once he saw the Lord once Isaiah lifted up his head once Isaiah got his eyes off all this down here and got his eyes on something up there he never mentions Isaiah's death again he never mentions his calamity again because once you stop looking at this and start looking at that everything changes everything falls into place and I'm telling somebody in this house you've got to make the decision of Isaiah stop looking at this and get your eyes on a God who's high lifted up 
in the year that he died, I saw also. Isaiah was all aware of the fact that Uzziah sinned. He still remembered what happened that moment he burned incense. He saw the decay of Israel and Judah. But he said, I see something else. Isaiah was saying, I see sin. But I see something greater than sin. I see the Lord. Isaiah said, I saw wickedness. But I saw something greater than wickedness. I saw the Lord. And there's some of you in this room today. You come in this house. And all you can see are the problems. All you can see are the troubles. All you can see are the trials and the calamities. But I've come to tell you. You may look at that. But why don't you lift up your head a little bit higher. And see a God who's greater than your problem. Why don't you look at a God. Who's got every answer to your question. Why don't you look at a God. Who's got the healing for your pain. I'm telling somebody in this house. You've got a choice as to what you look at. You decide what garners your attention and where you put your focus. What are you looking at? So many times we come into the house of God. and We can be in an environment like this. But all we can see are the problems we left at home. All we can see are the issues that are waiting on us outside the walls of this church. And while we sit in this house, and while we're in a spiritual atmosphere like this, we can be in the presence of a God, but we can look at the wrong thing. I'm not blind to the culture that we're living in right now. I'm not blind to the moral situations in America right now. I'm not blind to the political circumstances in America right now. I see the political divide in our nation. I see the left versus the right right now. I see the attack on our homes. I see the attack on our marriages. I see the attack on our kids. I see the attack on our young people. I see everything that's going on. I'm just going to let you have a little bit of insight on how God began to deal with me about this message. Because last year when COVID hit the first time, They shut everything down. Everybody sat at home six, seven, eight weeks. Couldn't go anywhere. And I'll be honest, the the only thing you could see what was going on on the news. Uh, All you could hear was what's going wrong in America. The only thing that they were pumping out uh, is the division uh, and all the racism and all the hatred, all the riots, uh, all of this political divide. Uh, And I'll be honest with everybody in this house, uh, because of what I was seeing uh, and because of what I was looking at, uh, something got a hold of me. I'll be honest, in those six to eight weeks, and even those weeks and months after all of that, something began to vex my spirit. Because there were days I'd go to God in prayer, and I'd say, God, this is not America that I want to raise my kids in. I've never been vexed so much in my life, Brother Moore, because uh, of everything that they were pumping out. I mean, the riots in the street, people being killed, uh, uh, racism and hatred on every corner. Uh, and because of what I was seeing, because uh, they're, they're saying that you don't even have to be a, a gender anymore. You can be non-binary. Uh, you, you, you can change your gender if you want to. Uh, and because of all this junk they were pumping out, uh, I became vexed in my spirit because of what I was seeing. Uh, and there were times when I would go to God in prayer and I would say God why don't you just come get your church today why don't you let that trumpet sound now listen I don't know where you stand on eschatology I don't know your end time views we've all got them but there were days you can laugh at me I laugh now but there were days I was so vexed 
that I said, Lord, if you're post-trib, could you just change your mind and be pre-trib and get us out of here? Because I said, Lord, I'm looking at a world that I don't want my kids to have to face. I'm looking at a world that I don't want to deal with anymore. I'd become so vexed in my spirit that I didn't even want to try to face it another day. And there were days I said, Lord, could you just change your mind and blow the trumpet now because of everything that I was looking at. Because my focus was on the wrong thing. And I've come to tell this congregation that it was in one of those prayer meetings when I was just pouring my spirit out to God because how vexed I felt. The Lord whispered a question into my spirit. And he said, son, what are you looking at? And I stopped praying. And God takes me to Isaiah chapter number 6. And I read those first few words. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord. And it was almost like the Lord was telling me that what happened to Isaiah is what's happening to you and my nation right now. You see the fallout. You see the calamity. You see the immorality. You see the debauchery and the decay. You see the racism. You see the hatred. You see the attack on the church. You see the attack on my people. But son, why don't you look at something else? Why don't you lift up your head and get your focus back on me? Because I've come to tell us what you look at affects the emotions that you have. And that's why there was a spirit of fear begin to cloak our nation. I'm in my Holy Ghost today. That's why there was a blanket of fear and unrest. And there was a, there was a spirit of anxiety that began to attack the church because we were looking at the wrong thing. We had our eyes on everything that was going on down here because if you're not careful what you look at and where you put your focus can affect you emotionally. And that's why we were discouraged. And that's why we felt hopeless. And that's why some of us felt afraid because what you look at affects the emotions that you portray. Maybe this is why Colossians tells us to set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. I think it was Paul's way of telling us that it would do us all well to lift up our head and fix our eyes on those spiritual matters because if we look at those things on earth for too long, it'll have a negative effect on us in every area of our life. What you look at affects you emotionally. And that's why we deal with heartache. That's why we deal with being overwhelmed. That's why we deal with discouragement. Because if I'm looking at the wrong thing, and I believe that there is a spirit of distraction that was released last year. And it's a spirit that we've still got to deal with today. Because it is a spirit that wants our attention to be on everything else but the one thing that matters. You see, there is such a thing in human history known as death by dismemberment. Much of this took place during the medieval era. And this painful process was carried out by chaining an individual, male or female, to four horses. The condemned individual's arms was chained to one horse. The other arm was chained to another. And the same happened to their legs. And these horses, when they were chained to this individual, they would be driven in opposite directions. And by doing so, that individual would be pulled literally limb from limb. They were pulled every way from the center. That's why it was called death by dismemberment. Because you were being pulled in every direction that was contrary to where you were. It was called death by dismemberment. 
destroy or dismemberment. But I think there's a thing that exists now that's called death by distractions because the danger of it is this. Circumstances of life can grab a hold of us here and it can grab a hold of us there. And if we are not careful, it can pull us in so many different directions that we become distracted from the one thing that really matters the most. Situations on this side. Problems over here. Trials over here. And if we are not careful, they can pull us apart. Come to ask us, what are you looking at? You see, distractions are dangerous. Because it gets our eyes off the one thing that matters. Can I remind everybody in this room this morning that it was by being distracted that caused Adam and Eve to be evicted out of the Garden of Eden. It's amazing to know, brother, the more God creates them, puts them in paradise. Says you can have any tree that you want, but the one tree you cannot have is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what is amazing about that is this. They are living in paradise. There's no problems. There's no devil that they've got to deal with at that moment. They're surrounded by God's blessings and God's bounty. They live in the presence of God every day. But the one thing they could not take their eyes off of was the one thing that they could not have. And because they were so distracted by that one tree, distractions led to Eve being beguiled by the serpent. And then Eve tells Adam and Adam to partake of the tree. And it all started with being distracted. And the same thing can happen to you and I. Because we love to point the finger at Adam and Eve. How could you do that? But just as they were placed in a garden of Eden, we come into a garden of paradise every Sunday and every Wednesday. And we are in the presence of God. And we are surrounded by God's blessing and God's bounty. But if we are not careful, we can become distracted by that one thing. We can become so sidetracked by that one thing. I've come to tell you that's what was so dangerous about the children of Israel. Because they stand ready to possess the land. After they spot it out for several days your Bible says they saw giants and then they saw themselves as grasshoppers you know the tragedy about Israel in that text they judged God's prophetic word and their future based on what they were currently looking at they measured what God had promised Abraham 400 years earlier based on what they were presently looking at at that moment. Uh, because I'm telling you, there is a danger in measuring God's promise uh, next to your present situation. Uh, Israel forfeited their opportunity uh, and prolonged God's promise. Uh, you know what? Joshua and Caleb looked at the land uh, and they said, we're well able to take the land. Uh, but there were ten others who said we can't. Uh, because you know why they said that? Uh, they were looking at the problem. Uh, they were looking at the adversary. Uh, they saw giants in the land. Uh, and because of what they saw out there they measured themselves by that very thing we saw giants and then we saw ourselves as grasshoppers the enemy never called Israel grasshoppers. But because they were looking at the wrong thing, they minimized God's promise. And they minimized the potential God had given them. They wandered 40 more years simply because they were looking at the wrong thing. What they saw hindered what God had already said. It was all because they were looking at the wrong thing. We see it play out in the New Testament. 
Because your Bible speaks of a day when Jesus goes up the mountain of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John follow him up that mountain. Something supernatural begins to occur on top of that mountain. Because there's light not shining on Jesus. There's light shining from him. He is in a process of glorification. And while all of this is going on, if that's not supernatural enough, now Moses and Elijah appear on that same mountain. It's amazing to know that you've got Moses who represents the law. You've got Elijah who represents the prophets. And you've got Peter, James, and John who represent the apostles. That's why if we're not going in the direction as a church of the law, the prophets, and the apostles, the Bible says we are founded on that same foundation. And Jesus is laying it all out for us to see. He was pulling the law together. He was pulling the prophets together. He was pulling the apostles together. Because the message that we preach is still correct. What's amazing is Moses and Elijah appear. Jesus is being glorified. Peter, James, and John are so overwhelmed that Peter says, let's build a tabernacle for all three of them. Let's just stay here. But if you put the timelines together, while Peter, James, and John are having a mountaintop experience, the other nine disciples are in the valley dealing with the boy who's demon-possessed. The Bible says his possession was so severe that he would oftentimes throw himself in the water and in the fire. I've always found it interesting that the Bible says water and fire. Because if you want to talk about water, who better to talk to than Moses? Because he was pulled out of the water from the basket. Moses was the man that stretched his rod across the Red Sea and it parted. He was the man that struck the rock and water came out. If you want to talk about water, who better than Moses? And if you want to talk about fire, who better than Elijah? Because Elijah was the one that called fire down from heaven and licked up the sacrifice and defied the prophets of Baal. It was this man Elijah who was taken off this earth in a chariot of fire. And while you've got water and fire up here, which is symbolic of the new birth again, You've got a demon throwing a boy in water and fire down here. And the Bible says it was so severe that when Jesus finally comes off the mountain, the disciples who were unable to cast the demon out look at Jesus and he cast the demon out. And they ask the question, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus looks at them and says, because of your unbelief. But what's amazing to me about that is this. Jesus says you couldn't cast him out because of your unbelief. But just few chapters before that, Jesus had already given them power and authority to cast out devils. So if they got the power and the authority to take care of that devil, why couldn't they? I believe, Brother Moore, they were so distracted at what that spirit was doing through that boy. He's in the water, he's back in the fire. He's in the water. They were so distracted at what the enemy was doing that they let the power and the authority God had already given them to fall to the wayside and unbelief took its place. I've come to tell you that's how hell works because hell works by distraction and because those nine disciples were so focused on the enemy, unbelief became a byproduct of their distraction and if you and I are not careful as a church or an individual the same thing will happen to us. We can have power and authority God can say I'll give you power after you get the Holy Ghost but we can become so distracted at what hell is doing that unbelief takes its place unbelief was a byproduct 
of them looking at the wrong thing. Unbelief was a byproduct of Israel looking at the wrong thing. It's amazing because Peter one day looks across the water and he sees Jesus walking on that water. And he just simply says, Lord, if that's you, let me come on that water. And Jesus says, come, walk on the water. And Peter starts walking on the water. Watch carefully now. This is how hell works. As long as Peter was looking at Jesus, everything was fine. But your Bible says when he saw the winds and waves were boisterous, that's when he began to sink. When he got his eyes off the one thing that was helping him, and started being distracted by all the elements around him. The Bible says when he saw that the winds and waves were boisterous. If you want to make it real spiritual. Your Bible says the enemy, the devil is the prince and power of the air. And when he saw that the winds were boisterous. When he got his eyes off God. And started looking at what the devil was doing around him. That's when he began to sink. He is in a supernatural environment. And yet he still gets distracted by the enemy. Because hell works by distractions. And how many times have you and I come into church? And how many times have you and I, because I've been there myself, and we sit in an atmosphere like we're in right now, but we're distracted by those things going on in our world. We are distracted by disappointments, distracted by disasters, distracted by discouragement and delay. How many times do we come in this house and all we can look at are the problems? All we can see are the uncertainties and the unknown. All we can see is a body that hasn't been healed yet or prayers that haven't been answered yet. All we can focus on are those situations that are contrary to what you had hoped for. All we can see is what the enemy is doing. And we fail to see what God's doing. And it's in those moments we find ourselves like Elisha's servant. The Bible said the Syrian army had come and surrounded them in the middle of the night. The Bible says because they had surrounded the city. Because the servant is so... Distracted by them. The Bible said he becomes afraid when he saw a host that encompassed that city. All he could see were the footmen or the horsemen and the chariots. All that this servant could see was the enemy that had positioned themselves to kill them in that city. Your Bible says the servant became fearful by what he saw because once again, what you look at affects your emotions. Elisha looks at him says, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now on the surface, that just sounds like a good pep talk that Elisha has given his servant. But when you begin to look deeper into what Elisha was telling his servant, you're quick to realize that Elisha wasn't just throwing out some pep talk to his servant, but he was literally quoting David from Psalm chapter 3. Because when David was feeling abandoned and when he was feeling surrounded by Absalom, David wrote these words in Psalm 3. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. 
God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. You're my glory. Here it is. And the lifter of my head. Therefore, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Do you see what David's doing? At first, he's fearful because all he can see is those that's against him. But he says, Lord, you're the lifter of my head. And I will be afraid of ten thousands of people. He goes on to tell us, though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. David, how can you say that? You're surrounded. Absalom has surrounded you. There's a host around you. But David said, I know something that's greater with me because he's the lifter of my head. And when I get my eyes off what the enemy's doing and I get my eyes back on what God is doing, there's a confidence that comes over me. And Elisha wasn't telling his servant, we have more soldiers than the Syrians. He was saying, God is with us. And regardless if they outnumber us a hundred to one, God is still with us. And God is always equal to the majority. He was simply telling him what David wrote all those years ago. He's the lifter of my head. And when I get my eyes back on him, it doesn't matter what's surrounding me right now. But the servant still doesn't get it. So Elisha grabs his hand and Elisha begins to pray a very specific prayer. He says, Lord, I want you to open his eyes that he may see. The Bible says when that servant lifted up his head, not only did he see a host that encompassed him, not only did he see the enemy, the Bible said he saw a mountain that was full of horses and chariots of fire, which was symbolic of God's presence and a heavenly host. And so I've come to ask everybody in this room today, what are you looking at right now? Why don't you make the decision that Isaiah done and say, I'm getting my eyes off what's going wrong down here. I'm getting my eyes off what hasn't happened yet. I'm getting my eyes off those things that have gone wrong. And I'm about to lift up my head. Because if I can lift up my head and get a brand new perspective of that God, everything else will change. I'm telling somebody in this house, if you could get your eyes back on God, there would be joy that would come on you. There would be a breakthrough that you would experience. There would be things that you haven't felt in a long time that begin to fall because what you look at affects your emotions. As they come to the piano today, watch what Isaiah saw. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. But the more you know what Isaiah was telling us, he was saying, I see a God who's still in charge. And I see a God who's still in control. And every now and again, you and I need to look at that same God and be reminded that regardless of how chaotic our world may be right now, regardless of how fast it may be spinning out of control, I'm not putting my hope in anything down here. We're in this world, but we are not of this world. We're just pilgrims passing through. And that's why I can have peace. That's why I can live my life with my head held high. Because if I don't have any hope in this, if I put my hope in this world, we're of all men most miserable. But I put my hope in something else because I understand God is still in control and God is still in charge and regardless of how chaotic this world may be he's still on the throne and then Isaiah said not only is he still in charge but Isaiah said he's high and lifted up 
meaning that not only was he still in charge, but he was a God who had all power and authority. Isaiah was a seer. No one in the Old Testament besides David wrote more about the coming Messiah than Isaiah did. Isaiah was a seer of things to come. And when the Bible says he's high and lifted up, it is the same words in context that Jesus repeats before he ascends off the Mount of Olives. When he looks at those people and he says, all power or all authority or all jurisdiction has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. And Isaiah was not only seeing a God who was still in control, but he was seeing a God who still had all power and authority. And then he said, his train filled the temple. This train, this garment that Isaiah was seeing filled the house of God. Has a lot of spiritual significance in it when you begin to study it out. Because in those days when two armies would go to battle, after the war had come to a conclusion, the king who had won the battle would every time go to the king that he had just defeated. And at the bottom of their armor were these robes or these pieces of fabric called trains. And he would cut the train off of that king he had just defeated. And he would take that train back to his city. And his seamstress would attach that train to the bottom of his train. You see, that's important to know because in those days, the length of a king's train symbolized how powerful that king was. The longer the train, the more battles he had won. The longer the train, the more enemies he had defeated. And Isaiah said, I see a God who's not just in charge. I see a God who doesn't just have all power and authority. But I see a God whose train fills the temple. Can I tell everybody in this house, you're in the presence of a God who's won every battle that you're going through right now. You're in the presence of a God who has defeated every adversary that may come against us. You are surrounded by victories in this house right now. And I'm telling somebody in this house, you are surrounded by a God who's never been conquered. And he's never lost his power. He's never ran from a problem and he will never leave you nor forsake you. You're in the presence of a God whose victories fill his house. And I feel that God in this house right now. Because you see, the thing about this God is you can't talk about him without him showing up. You can't talk about how powerful he is without his power eventually showing up. And he's in this house today. But I've got to ask you, what are you looking at? When Isaiah saw a God still on the throne, still in charge, when he saw a God who was high and lifted up, still had all power and authority, when he saw a God whose train filled the temple, his victories were in the house. Then Isaiah said, I saw seraphim angels as they began to fly over that throne. That is important because every time you see seraphim angels in your Bible, without fail, they're always in the presence of God. Isaiah, because he got his eyes off this, got his eyes on that, he found himself in a supernatural atmosphere. And the same atmosphere that Isaiah found himself in then is the same atmosphere that some of us can find ourselves in. As we stand all over this house today,
When he found himself in the supernatural presence of God, your Bible then says the post of the door moved of him that spoke. And then the house was filled with smoke. That word smoke literally means the glory of God began to fill that house. And all of that happened the moment Isaiah said, I see all of this, but I see something greater. As we lift our hands all over this house today, I wonder as you lift your hands all over this room this morning, I wonder as they begin to play, about to sing slowly in this house, I wonder as your hands are lifted, I wonder if you could just pray that prayer that Elisha prayed for his servant. Why don't you ask the Lord, Lord, why don't you open my eyes right now? Lord, let our eyes be focused on you. Maybe that's why the Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. If I can get my eyes back on the one who started this, if I can get my eyes back on the one who's going to end this, something's going to change. There's people in this house today because of situations, because of trials, maybe because of things that you've been looking at in the days gone by, maybe your emotions, maybe you feel a little bit of anxiety, maybe there's a little bit of fear that's tried to creep in. Can I tell you once again, what you look at affects your emotions. And so if that's true, why don't we put our eyes back on God? And why don't we allow His presence to change our emotions right now? Come on, why don't you step out of your pews today and let's just spend a moment or two around the front and let us take advantage of this moment that we have right now. And as you come and you lift your hands, why don't you put your focus back on Him? Come on, why don't you put your eyes back on the one that's able to heal your body today? Why don't you put your focus back on the one who can answer every prayer that you've been praying? Why don't you look at the one who's got the answer to every question? Why don't you look at the one who can give direction when you feel lost? Come on, as they begin to play and sing today, why don't we put our eyes back on him? Come on, you're going to find yourself in that same place Isaiah did. You're in the presence of a God who's able to change everything. Oh 
time had to have a preacher come lay hands on him pray for him that the scales may fall off his eyes that he can see oh he thought he was going the right right direction he thought he was doing what God wanted him to do until a man of God came thank God for the man of God that's come this morning watch this I was talking to Brother Brandon yesterday. He even was talking about some things in African things. Uh, they're not near as distracted as we are. They're not near as busy as we are. They can have church in the middle of the day. On a Monday. Or Tuesday. Or any other day. You know why? Because they're not distracted. Other places to go. Other things to do. America's got a lot of events going on. A lot of things to distract us. One of the main things I taught my children in driving. Don't let nothing distract you while you're sitting at the steering wheel. All it takes is changing the channel on the radio. Why do you think they've got those knobs on the steering wheel now? Why do you think they're coming up with, with uh, types of things to hook to your ear and all so you can talk on a cell phone but yet not be? We're on a journey. And the devil's doing everything he can to distract us. 
Thank God for the man of God that came by this morning. Get my eyes. <laughs> I know we're living in a broken world, in a chaotic world. But you know what? I'm going to get my eyes on him. And in the midst of this old world, I want to live a victorious life. How about you? Amen. God bless you this morning. Let me say again, appreciate you coming, being a part of this service with us today. And I know it's July the 4th, and they've got other events maybe planned. Uh, but you know what? We've heard the word this morning. It do us good to let this kind of just sink in and just kind of over and over and over for a little while. Amen. And just kind of look around and say, you know what? I'm not going to be distracted by this or that. Nope. Okay, watch this. Anybody ever get distracted from praying? Anybody ever get a moment of time and you, you, things already, already? <laughs> and you know, you know, I, boy, I really need, I better, I, I better. Pr- Anybody ever get distracted from the word of God? Is that the first thing you do every morning or is it the last thing you ever do? I'm sorry, he's preached. It's good. You just think about it. The youth heard one of the main tools that the enemy is using on this generation. Social media. Through that phone. Pulling at them. And as he said, he said, I stood on my head and my hair on fire trying to keep us not going there. But he said it didn't stop us. Amen. We know. God loves us. God's in the saving business. He's speaking to us. God bless you this morning. Appreciate you again. Love you. We'll see you Wednesday night. Brother Sanford will be back with us Wednesday night. 6.30 prayer time, 7 o'clock service time. Come back expecting a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost right here in Bendale, Mississippi. God bless you. You have a good July the 4th today. God bless you.